This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, listeners. Just to let you know before we start the show, there are references to child sexual abuse in today's episode. QAnon seems like it's been around forever. But it wasn't actually until Donald Trump entered office that the far-right conspiracy group found its footing. One of the big surprises of the presidential campaign was the explosion of fake news on the internet. Recently, some of those theories, which were born online in a murkier world that most will never visit, have made their way into general discourse and even onto the Senate floor. Last week, as the confirmation hearings for Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, kicked off, some Republican senators wanted to focus on a particular line of questioning, that she's too lenient in sentencing those convicted of being involved in child pornography. So where did this inaccurate accusation come from? Well, it was originally circulated in the QAnon community. So why are some in the Republican Party so eager to not only flirt with conspiracy theories, but promote them as fact even after they've been debunked. I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland, and this is Politics Weekly America. To discuss all of this, I spoke to Alex Kaplan. He's a senior researcher at the left-leaning nonprofit organization Media Matters. He focuses mainly on social media misinformation and disinformation and online extremism. So he's been following what's happening in the Supreme Court confirmation hearings very closely. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. We're chatting the week that the Senate Judiciary Committee was originally supposed to vote to confirm Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The committee will now vote on that confirmation on Monday, April 4th. But before the hearings kicked off last week, you noticed a particular line of attack on Judge Jackson's record emerge. Can you tell us about this unfounded claim and what's it about? Yeah. So um, leading up to her conf- uh, Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings, um, there was a charge leveled by Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican of Missouri, basically claiming that she kind of had a quote-unquote like alarming treatment of sex offenders, kind of basically had this pattern of being easy on child predators. And basically, as the confirmation hearing started, more Republican senators seem to invoke the claim as well. Yes, let me ask you about the Hawkins case. You and I talked about this yesterday. You've been able to think about it overnight. This is a case where you had an 18-year-old who possessed and distributed hundreds of images of 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds, and you gave him, frankly, a slap on the wrist sentence of three months. Do you regret it? I don't remember whether it was um, distribution or possession in the law. Do you regret it? So Senator Hawley is one of the primary sources of these allegations, and I'm putting heavy air quotes around that word sources. But media outlets like ABC have proven these allegations to be wrong, finding that Jackson's sentences in child pornography cases were 
actually quite similar to those that uh, federal judges who had been appointed by former President Donald Trump had given. This is by no means the first time that right-wing media outlets and even right-wing politicians have alluded to pedophilia as an attack line against liberals. We saw it with the infamous case of Pizzagate. 28-year-old Edgar Welch was arrested in Washington Sunday afternoon outside Comet Ping Pong, a popular family pizza parlor. D.C. police say Welch fired at least one round into the restaurant floor. Where users of 4chan spread the false claim that Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in D.C. was the headquarters of a child trafficking ring led by Hillary Clinton and her then campaign manager, John Podesta. So why choose this line of attack again when it comes to Judge Jackson? I think it's fair to say we're basically in a new satanic panic spurred on uh, to a significant extent by certain conspiracy theories that have really gained traction online. You mentioned Pizzagate. That became the precursor to what uh, is now to QAnon, uh, which is basically incorporated Pizzagate, which has claimed that there is uh, a cabal of pedophiles, uh, like be Democrats, Hollywood figures, other so-called quote-unquote elites. And this conspiracy theory has really blown up. Um, it has become very, it, it really gained significant traction on social media over the course of a few years. And most notably, you know, by 2020, it was starting to try to sanitize itself, so to speak. So you started seeing it try to maybe dilute some of its other focuses uh, about Democrats and trying to just narrow it around saving the children. There was a save the children campaign among the QAnon community to kind of camouflage itself. Um, And it was just became about trying to stop child sex trafficking uh, in order to recruit people per se. And around this time, the QAnon community was also trying to camouflage itself and kind of pretend that QAnon, quote unquote, didn't exist. And actually, as regular host Jonathan Friedland has mentioned on a previous episode, Judge Jackson was the one to sentence the gunman in the Pizzagate story to four years in prison. So she has a personal connection to that case. But listening to the hearings last week, were you surprised to hear some Republicans essentially accusing Judge Jackson of being too lenient on those convicted in cases of child pornography? There has been an increasing conversation, per se, as these conspiracy theories have taken off in recent years, in- invoking pedophilia as kind of a, a, an attack line among certain forces on the right. Uh, I can note that, you know, as this was happening, that there has been the growth of QAnon um, has become extensive online. And as that's happened, it's become kind of big enough that Republicans in a way sometimes have seen or had felt a way of trying to appeal to it in some way for political gain. Any of these wait, defendants... wait, 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 you think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail? No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. I think the best way to... So as these Republican senators were questioning Judge Jackson over these unfounded claims, what was happening online as those hearings were unfolding? The QAnon community was embracing the claim. You were seeing memes being shared uh, among QAnon influencers pushing the claim that we're calling her a pedo protector, a pedo sympathizer, soft on pedos, uh, a QAnon show host who, according to his own words, participated in the Capitol insurrection. He said that she was an apologist or someone who was looking to do judicial activism on behalf of child molesters and people like her colleagues in the Democratic Party. Ron Watkins, who uh, a QAnon influencer, former administrator of the site where Q had been based, 
who may have been Q for a period of time himself, called her a pedophile enabler. Some actually pointed to her being the sentence, uh, the person who sentenced the Pizzagate shooter as evidence for the claim. Um, some also invoked a longstanding claim that they have that uh, President Biden is a pedophile himself uh, as evidence for the claim. So they they embraced it. OK. And just to say claims that Joe Biden is a pedophile are unfounded. And also Ron Watkins, who you mentioned, has always denied he's behind any of the Q messaging. But what's interesting about him is that he is running for Congress in Arizona. We've talked on this podcast before about Marjorie Taylor Greene, the House representative from Georgia who is partial to spreading a QAnon conspiracy theory. Do you see the potential for QAnon and politics to truly collide where we'll have more Q believers representing voters in Congress? It's possible. So as you said, we do have Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. And I would also actually add Warren Boebert of Colorado. Um, in Congress now, both of whom at one time or another have expressed comments, some type of level of support for QAnon. Right now, I've been keeping track of uh, congressional candidates who have expressed some level of support for QAnon, running for Congress this cycle. Um, We are are current or former candidates for the cycle. Um, We're currently near 60 candidates so far. Uh, At this point in the year, we already have one candidate uh, at least that has already guaranteed themselves a spot on the ballot in November who's expressed some level of support for QAnon. It is certainly possible that one or more candidates who've expressed some level of support for QAnon will be uh, elected to Congress um, come November. Going back to the Supreme Court nomination hearings, it was interesting to see how Judge Jackson herself was responding to these unfounded allegations during the hearings. Thank you, Senator, for allowing me to address um, this concern. She managed to stay calm as Republican senators uh, pressed her about her sentences in child pornography cases. So do you think that she managed to convince any QAnon supporters with her responses? Do you think that she changed any minds here? I I could speak about the QAnon community. No, Uh, she can't convince them. But, you know, uh, as we're noting, again, the central tenet of QAnon is that Democrats are part of a cabal of pedophiles. So that's not the community that's going to change their minds about this. So we've talked a little bit about how QAnon is influencing politics at the national level. But can you tell us a little bit about how QAnon is also really influencing some important local uh, political races as well? Yeah. So um, the QAnon community uh, since, uh, I would say, last year has really started to focus in particular on local elections. Um, So you've started seeing QAnon figures run for school board or uh, target school boards. So they've really kind of focused on local politics, school boards. And also they have embraced a uh, a plan by a guy named Dan Schultz, what he called the precinct strategy, which is basically to take over the Republican Party at the local level by becoming Republican precinct members. Um, He started going on multiple QAnon shows, pushing this plan, telling QAnon followers, you know, follow these shows, Go with Republican precinct members and QAnon hosts um, were embracing the call, telling their followers to go do what he said. And then it came out uh, a ProPublica report months later after Dan Schultz did this, that there was a noticeable jump in QAnon supporters becoming Republican precinct members. As I said earlier, we've actually talked about QAnon on this podcast before as it relates to individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also its role on what happened on January 6, 2021, when a mob of Trump supporters staged an attempted insurrection on the Capitol. 
The January 6th committee is still working to find out exactly what happened that day. But what do we know about QAnon's influence on the January 6th attack so far? The QAnon community played a significant role spreading false voter fraud claims after the 2020 election. There were, besides the fact that there were multiple QAnon supporters that were participated in the insurrection, so they, they played a significant role. There was a group of figures that were inflaming Trump's voter fraud grievances that were meeting with Trump, acting kind of on his behalf, that were influenced by QAnon. They had heavily, heavy QAnon ties. So Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Patrick Byrne, but Sidney Powell, she was citing QAnon figures. Morning. Sidney Powell, one of the lawyers who pushed false election fraud claims for former President Trump, is now moving to dismiss the $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit against her from Dominion Voting Systems. Citing QAnon claims in her lawsuits, Michael Flynn had taken a QAnon oath. A former U.S. Army Lieutenant General and former National Security Advisor appearing to endorse a military coup here in the United States. Trump won. So these people were like influenced heavily by QAnon um, and they were basically trying to help Trump with his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. As Judge Jackson's hearings were uh, unfolding, there was also another story that we were learning more about involving another Supreme Court justice, uh, Clarence Thomas, and specifically his wife, Ginny. The January 6th Select Committee has obtained more than two dozen text messages between President Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ginny Thomas is a conservative political activist, and she had an in-depth text exchange with Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, after the 2020 election. In those texts, uh, Ginny Thomas seems to really latch onto this idea that Biden and the Democrats stole the election, speculating that, quote, we are living through what feels like the end of America and, quote, the end of liberty. So what did you make of this story? I know Ginny Thomas had, you know, was a conservative activist and had pushed some claims in the past. Uh, I was not aware of her uh, directly invoking, I would say, QAnon stuff before, but she did claim stuff about like, you know, Democrats maybe going to Guantanamo. That, 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 that sounds QAnon-ish. And then she, uh, one particular thing, it would really, it would stood out to me also among that is that she pushed a conspiracy theory about watermark ballots. That is a QAnon conspiracy theory that was literally based on a Q post about like watching the water. And that conspiracy theory, which, which took off after the 2020 election, uh, claiming that, you know, it was like an effort to catch voter fraud during with using fake ballots and watermarks. What's notable is that is that conspiracy theory has actually really had legs. So Sidney Powell uh, cited it in her lawsuits. It was, it was actually indulged in that, you know, supposed Arizona audit. That happened last year. They were using UV lights to look on the for the ballots for these supposed watermarks. There has been an effort now nationally led by uh, Mark Fincham, a Arizona Secretary of State candidate, who has pushed the watermark ballot claim to like secure ballots and kind of deal with the supposed issue around the country. And now you were seeing it uh, invoked by the wife of Supreme Court Justice being pushed to Mark Meadows, who was then Trump's chief of staff. And it's interesting to see in those texts that. Thomas really seems to think of the results of a free and fair election as a war of some kind against Biden and against the uh, voters who put him into office. So what do you think it says about the U.S. that this sort of rhetoric is being shared by the then president's closest advisors? Uh, do you think that it has really spread to a substantial portion of the Republican base by this point? The spread of QAnon conspiracy theories 
it really is entrenched itself in the executive branch during the transition. You had this with Ginny Thomas now. You had these figures, Patrick Burns, Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, trying to influencing Trump. Um, there was another conspiracy theory around Italy that I believe Mark Meadows also asked people to investigate that also had QAnon ties. This stuff really spread. Republicans have flirted with QAnon for a while now, even though the FBI labeled QAnon a domestic terrorist threat back in 2019. So how long do you see Republicans letting this fringe conspiracy group tighten their grip on the party? So I think there were people would wonder what was going to happen to the QAnon community or to QAnon after Biden took office. You know, Trump wasn't in office anymore. And, and it, its central figure, Q, is actually has imposed it since December 2020. But despite that, it has really kind of combined itself with other conspiracy movements. It's really given a boost to the voter fraud movement. It's given a boost to anti-vaxxers. It's become, I, I call it an anti-reality online distribution network. And the social media platforms were way too late cracking down on it. They started cracking down on it in mid-2020. And by that point, it had already it organized itself and embedded itself enough within Republican politics that you're still seeing it just throughout Republicans indirectly, indirectly uh, trying to appeal to it. I mean, that, that did include like uh, Republican candidates going on QAnon shows, um, using QAnon social media, hashtags, uh, slogans. That was a little more explicit, but even, you know, inexplicit stuff that, that talk about child trafficking, save the children, um, stopping pedophilia. Even if it's not indirectly about directly about QAnon, it, I think it has played a role in rising that as an attack. And obviously, not all Republicans believe that Judge Jackson is someone who panders to pedophiles mm -hmm. or that America is facing an existential threat with Democrats in power. But it is somewhat depressing to see how these conspiracy theories have really bled into national politics so much. So at the risk of sounding dramatic, do you think that allowing uh, conspiracy theories like QAnon to spread so widely could really pose a threat to democracy itself? I can't. I mean, yes. It, it, the conspiracy theory has ties to violence, as we know. It, it's been tied to multiple acts of violence, including capital insurrection. Multiple government agencies have warned about QAnon. The tenets of the conspiracy theory about basically like punishing enemies during the Guantanamo is inherently undemocratic. The movement is basically pro-authoritarian. You have seen them last year. They, they overwhelmingly cheered the uh, military coup in Myanmar, uh, where they wished for the same thing here because they believe that was dealing with voter fraud claims and the same thing happened here. And you've seen them most recently pretty much overwhelmingly cheer the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I, I think it is concerning that this basically pro-authoritarian movement ha has embedded itself so much. And I think it's extremely concerning that this conspiracy theory has tried to basically impact our democratic process. So what do you think the end point is here? Do we just sort of sadly accept that when it comes to voting in America, we're dealing with uh, two different realities among voters, basically? Or do you think that there is a path here to return to some uh, version of shared reality and a shared set of facts? What what do you see as the future here? Honestly, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. This voter fraud movement influenced in part by QAnon, not, full, not only, but um, in part, it's become really extensive. You know, the midterm elections are coming up. 
I don't think this problem is going away. Alex, we always like to ask a what else question on our podcast, and I wanted to touch on something that the uh, January 6th committee was doing this week. The House Select Committee voted unanimously to hold former Trump advisors Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino in contempt of Congress for their refusal to comply with the panel's subpoenas. So what are your thoughts on that? And what can you tell us a little bit about the uh, these advisors' relationship to Trump? Scavino was known to uh, have taken and basically kind of winked to the QAnon community. He would sometimes post stuff that kind of fit QAnon tropes. I know uh, there have been cases where he took stuff from the QAnon community. Uh, I remember back in 2020 finding him posting on Facebook, I think Instagram too, uh, an image with a Q on it that I was able to trace to a QAnon supporter who had posted it at him. He was also known to have taken content and to monitor for a far-right forum known as uh, the Donald. And I believe Liz Cheney um, has, has cited Scavino's following and kind of relationship with QAnon and the Donald as something that the committee would like to look at. Alex Kaplan, senior researcher at Media Matters, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. If you've been affected by any of the issues mentioned in this week's episode, there will be links to where you can find support on the show description on The Guardian website. That's all for me this week. In the UK, the Metropolitan Police issued fines to about 20 people involved in COVID lockdown breaking parties in Westminster. Guardian columnist John Harris was ready and waiting to talk to our colleagues Peter Walker and Gabby Hinsliff about what it means for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So listen back to Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, wherever you get your podcasts to hear their thoughts. For now, though, it's goodbye from me, Joni Grieve. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. Jonathan Friedland will be back with you next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.